the way that you're interpreting it through these fundamental prisons as a perceived threat is what's generating your own internal terrain shifting into what you're calling I'm pissed off. But it's not because of something. And when you really get that, it's so empowering because I'm no longer a victim of anything. My name is Peter Crone, and you're listening to the Lifestylist Podcast. Today is a good day, my friends. It's the day I'm dropping another life-changing conversation with the powerhouse of a guest. This is episode 413, Transcending Limiting Beliefs and Negative Patterns to Achieve Your Highest Potential with Peter Crone. The mind architect Peter Crone is a writer, speaker, and a thought leader in human potential who works with world-class entertainers, professional athletes, and global organizers. Peter redesigns the subconscious mind that drives behavior to inspire a new way of living, from limitation and stress to freedom and joy. Peter is a fascinating guy and someone that I've been wanting to uh, get on the podcast for quite a while. He works with all types of people, including professional athletes, royalty, celebrities, CEOs, and the general public like you and me. He works with his clients using a holistic approach of mind, body, and spirit. And in fact, his company's slogan is spiritual freedom, mental peace, and physical vitality. Sounds familiar, right? That's, uh, that's really what we're all about here at the Lifestylist Podcast. Peter says that when working with the body, he is unrivaled, basing his training on an incredible foundation of knowledge in Ayurveda, human biology, exercise physiology, biomechanics, and anatomy. Now, what we talk about in this show has more to do with your state of mind and emotions. And I want to let you know that you can find show notes, links, and transcripts for this episode at lukestory.com slash Peter. That's lukestory.com slash Peter. Now on to the episode. So this conversation covers just about everything one could hope for in the realm of personal growth and development. So just trust me when I say you'll want to listen through to the conclusion of this bad boy. And for those who enjoy spoilers, here are just a couple of choice nugs Peter shares with us in this episode. Self-labeling and how it affects us internally. Words as both the lock and the key to our freedom. Letting the old version of yourself die. Tools you can use to trick the elusive ego, breaking free from self-imposed roles, the primal prisons of the mind, using words to create instead of reinforcing old stories, the bedrock of all suffering and how to escape it, curiosity as the portal to possibility, dissolving the perception of problems. And then Peter also takes me through a mind-blowing mini-mind architect coaching session toward the end of the conversation that was very enlightening to say the least. So make sure you stick around to hear that. So thank you so much for joining us today. And listen, if you are inspired by this conversation, I would be extremely grateful if you could leave the show a rating and review on iTunes. Now doing this is much easier than it used to be. All you got to do is click around on your Apple podcast app and you'll find the ratings tab where you can take about 60 seconds to support the Lifestylist podcast. And even a small amount of your effort goes a long way in helping to grow this show. Okay, now let's drop into our hearts so Peter Crone can unlock our minds on the Lifestylist podcast. So how do you determine what to call yourself, right? That's what we were chatting before yeah. before the official begin of the recording. Yeah, I, I think it, it sort of reminds me of I was telling you I'm doing this mastermind with a group right now, which is it's just so moving and what's actually occurring in this container is so powerful. 
But at the beginning, as I introduce myself, and of course they know who I am by virtue of the fact that they've signed up for this six-month journey with me, you know, I sort of gave them a trailer of coming attractions by saying, you know, obviously, you know, I'm Peter Crone, the mind architect, but I'll later reveal that I'm not that, right? And so there's sort of a little tongue-in-cheek in there, but it's also to, to uh, let them understand the misnomer of any kind of label. You know, if you want to go even deeper, it's not, I'm not even Peter, you know, it's like that's a sound, <laughs> totally. right? So totally. certainly why would I hold on to a particular title? And helping, you know, work with a lot of pro athletes and in their transition into retirement, you know, the association with the title can become the attachment to the perceived value. Now, of course, there's the actual undertaking of whatever their skill is. But when I'm no longer a professional athlete or I'm no longer a mother or a father because the kids have fled the nest and the perceived value that was associated with that title suddenly becomes diminished and that person goes into a slump or depression or they're lost. But if they can recognize, well, that's just a chapter of my life where I called myself a professional athlete and I'm curious to see what the next chapter is and what I might call myself. So I think it, 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 it's probably what we're going to dive into, but the power of language and how it becomes the container in which we function, you know, sort of the reverberations of a, a way of viewing ourselves, our personal reality, our personality is based on the linguistics that we've invariably adopted or inherited through our childhood but then they become the very sort of the fortresses in which we're stuck. Isn't so, that interesting paradoxically in the form of language as a communication tool? Yeah. In that it's so powerful and expansive and allows us to move forward, but in the same way, it, by contrast, can also become a trap. Especially yeah. the self-identification with titles. As you were speaking, I was thinking of, oh, there was a period in my life when I was really attached to being a musician. So people say, hey, right. who are you? What do you do? I said, I'm Luke. I'm a musician. Yeah, I play bass. I'm a musician. Right. And then as that started to fall away and I lost interest in that, and maybe I wouldn't have had I been more successful <laughs> you know, in terms of making it a career, but at yeah. one point I was like, ah, I'll let that go. And then I became a fashion stylist. And right. you know, there was this egoic uh, sort of attachment to that, even though it wasn't yeah. even something about which I was truly and deeply passionate. It's kind of something I fell into and sounded good on paper. And it was kind of cool to tell people at parties. And I was like, oh, I'm a celebrity stylist. Right. Right. Got to have the celebrity part. Not just oh, the yeah, no. Because if you just say stylist, they think you do hair. And they're like, oh, do you do color and cuts? No, no, no. And then you have to explain what a stylist is. But yeah, but that's to to the earlier point we were kind of um, starting to explore. It's difficult when you don't have a way to label yourself because, in terms of if you're, especially if you yourself are a brand, yeah, um, or you're having some kind of you know professional persona, you need to be able to communicate that when you get booked to speak or come on a podcast. When Absolutely. I do the intro for this, I'm yeah. gonna have to say our guest today is Peter Crone, a fill in the blank, right, 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 right. Yeah. But as a continually evolving uh, person like yeah. I know you are and I am. It's like, God, it's kind of a moving target. Who am I? What do I do? I don't even know. Right. You know? It's um, one of my, I love writing in quotes and that's how distinctions sort of invariably come through me and I say, you know, words are both the lock and the key. Ah, that's good. So, that's good. You know, so what I, I would assert my superpower is sort of really in listening and so what I'm listening for is these stories and narratives that people will come to me for, like an athlete who's scuffling or he's, you know, having the yips on the mound as a baseball player or a golfer who keeps missing the cut or, you know, it's an executive who doesn't have good control of his staff or whoever it might be, they'll tell their story, but really that's symptomatic, right? Like a good doctor, like a real doctor, like um, part of my work is in Ayurveda. So what we call a Vaidya is somebody who 
would be able to look at these subtle symptoms and sometimes less subtle and be able to sort of reverse engineer and go, okay, well, where did that actually arise from? So if someone's dealing with anxiety, I never deal with anxiety. I couldn't care less about it. But I know that that points to a deeper construct that they're stuck in. Invariably, it's something to do with insecurity. I don't, I don't feel safe in my environment. And then we can correlate that to some experiences in a house where maybe mom or dad were mercurial. There was inconsistencies. Dad would come home drunk and he would make a lot of noise. And for a child, it was, very, it was just very unstable. And so their relationship that they developed to environment was, I fundamentally don't feel safe. And now as a 30, 40, 50-year-old could be earning plenty of cash and maybe have status in a company, but they struggle with anxiety or social anxiety. And so why I'm sharing that as it relates to words of both the lock and the key is that the words that have created the lock, that is the precursor, the container within it, which anxiety is an act, uh, sort of an inextricable experience, is something like I'm not safe. Now, they're not walking around saying I'm not safe. And yet that programming, that code at the subconscious level is nonetheless the, the bedrock of the way they think, feel, and act that gives rise to their, their sort of conscious experience. So that's sort of the art. And to describe their felt sense of being, they yeah. label it anxiety. Yes. Or it could be depression, or as you yeah. can speak to addiction, or whatever it is that anyone's dealing with, or that they don't feel they're getting sufficient income based on their own perception of self-worth, or the relationships keep crumbling, and why, like whatever it is that humans deal with, it's a, usually a pretty small bucket. There's five or six topics of conversation for humans, right? And then the names change, the location shape, it's my relationship, it's my health, it's my career and my money. So for me, you know, what I love doing is being able to sort of take somebody to that blind spot that got triggered or formulated sort of very similar to epigenetics, but really sort of what I call emotional epigenetics. So there were certain triggers externally that turned on the construct that then people became stuck in, that then manifests in their real life as something that they're now trying to solve, which is too late, right? Again, one of my catchphrases, I don't, I don't solve problems, I dissolve them. And it's the dissolution has the key in words, right? The lock in the key. The key is that we use language, or at least I do, to be able to help them to see, oh, you've been living for 20, 30, 50 years in the, in the construct of uh, I don't feel safe. And that gives rise to, your, to the way that you relate to life. And they're like, wow, like I've had that there for 20, 30 years. You know, so. I think people with your ability, and I might share that ability to a lesser or greater degree, but um, a really good listener yeah. that's listening for what's behind the words. It, it reminds me of Tony Robbins when he does these interventions. You know, I've been to a number of his mm-hmm. events and I'm always like, get to the part where you do the intervention. <laughs> you know, like that's my favorite part because right. someone's like, I'm pissed at my boss yeah, and yeah. I'm stuck here and stuck there. And he's like, no, it's this. You know, he yeah. picks up one word or some nuance in their body language and he finds the story under the story. I find yeah. that to be a really, just a fascinating um, skill that some people have. And I sense that you have a bit of that too. Yeah, for sure. I would say that's pretty much the, the tenant of my whole work, the cornerstone of what I'm doing with people. Like even in this mastermind, as I sort of briefly explained to you prior to this, like I'm working with someone, but I'm simultaneously teaching people about what I'm doing. But in my world, it's like I kind of know where they're stuck and they can't see it. So there's a certain degree of grace and compassion that's required in that process. And, and I can be pretty direct, but I, I want to be able to help them see it. So I'll ask questions around it. Okay, where did you feel that when you were younger? Can you remember a particular incident where you felt like you weren't sufficient or you were in enough, weren't enough? And so it, it is definitely an art form. But it's, to see the lights, I can understand why you love that moment. Because when you see the lights come on, it's the best. 
It's insane. Like it's never, it's never gotten old over two decades of doing it. Like even in this mastermind, like you know, the one particular person I was helping that I was telling you about, like she came back the next month, and we're only meeting once a month. But people are like, "Wait, is that you? Like you look totally different, <laughs> right?" And 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 it's because she is, right? The version of her that was in a conversation with me at the beginning literally died, right? And that sounds very esoteric, but like the identity that we think ourselves to be is what gets in the way of what we're ironically looking for. So I used to have a teacher that would use this really intelligent but covert way to circumvent the defensiveness of the ego. This was yeah. early in addiction recovery. Uh-huh. And uh, he, it was a mentor of sorts. And he would talk to me about someone else's neuroses mm-hmm. and describe it to me. And, and observing their behavior, not in a judgmental way, but just observationally. Yeah. And he would use that as a way to speak to me. Yeah. Because I was, you know, curious and there was an, an, a nature of inquiry to it that yeah. would allow me to not be defensive or closed-minded. Yeah. And he started describing someone else's behavior patterns and things like that. And then it would instigate me to kind of be going, oh, shit, like... That's that's what I do, right. you know. But if he just came directly and said, "You know what? You're really manipulative, or you're a people pleaser, or yeah. whatever manifestation of, yeah. uh, uh, you know, was was presenting," it it would have been too confronting. And in his wisdom, however flawed he was in hindsight, <laughs> in many other ways, God bless him, um, he was really skilled at that. He really understood the nature of ego and all of its games and defensives, and yeah. just how elusive it can be. And so that's one tool that he used is he would. Talk about other people, and it was almost like gossiping. It wasn't, right. you know, necessarily to a group, but just to me, like, ah, oh, did you notice he did this and that and that? Yeah. And it would be like a way to pull my covers yeah. without me knowing he was doing it. Maybe until years later, and going, oh, I see what he was doing, and I've and I've even adopted that to some degree when I sense that. Yeah. I have the ability to convey an insight to someone, but there's just the doors closed. Yeah. Right. Without being invasive or you know too coercive about it, there there are a number of different tools that I think can be really useful. A hundred percent. I mean, I can remember working, being on contract with a major league baseball team and I would only check in with the team periodically. And whenever I was there, the medical staff, which travel with the team, you know, home games, whatever, or, or away, they, they were fascinated with the process and I actually helped a lot of them discover some of the, just the, the tools in communication, those simple questions you can pose. But I gave, you said about the door, you know, it sort of reminded me of one of the analogies I gave them. I said, listen, if I'm the world's greatest interior designer, and I'm known for that, like so like there's a certain prestige that's out there in the world, I'm still not going to bust into somebody's house and start rearranging the furniture. Like if you're in this state, you're going to get shot, you know, depending <laughs> <laughs> and many others, right? Mm-hmm. So, so as a metaphor for helping, especially with something as subtle and sensitive as the psyche, you know, I would always remind the guys, you, you know, you've got, to, you've got to knock on the door gently or ring the bell. You know, and see if you get invited in to make some suggestions as to how they could perhaps refurnish their place. That's so, so good. That reminds me uh, of one <clears throat> tactic I used when I was a fashion stylist, a celebrity stylist. Yeah, yeah, let's not forget that. Um, you, you know, you'd work with someone, uh, especially people that had some notoriety and they are surrounded by yes people. Yeah. And so they get this sort of inflated sense of authority and self, yet mm-hmm. the powers that be, say their manager, agent, label, movie studio, is in my ear going, man, you got to change the way they dress. <laughs> like, you know, they have bad taste or whatever it is. Right. And so there was this 
sort of trick that I developed that I later ended up teaching my, my fashion students, which I did for a long time. Um, they would say, well, I want to wear this and I want to wear that. And here's what I brought. And here's what I think this look would be. And rather than saying like, oh no, that doesn't look good. I would say something to the effect of, oh my God, that's awesome. That's so cool. Let's put this over here on the rack and then check out this other thing that I brought. This could be cool too, right? It's just like, just like a just nuance of yeah. saying the same thing, which is basically like, that is horrific looking. You're not wearing that. <laughs> right. uh, but rather than shooting it down, just kind of, you know, giving them some, I mean, in hindsight, sort of false props. Yeah. Um, but just kind of, ushering in the idea that I thought would serve the, the highest purpose of that. It's, yeah. It's, and in that, in that case, you know, it's like there are different ways that we relate to people, right? So in that case, it's professional. Maybe it's someone you've met before or they know you're, they're aware of your abilities. So it, it really speaks to the element of trust, right? Because the degree to which that relationship, in your case, over time became enhanced or strengthened and there was affinity is probably the degree to which you then don't need strategy, right? Totally. You know, so yeah. it's just a nice thing for people to be able to understand that if you're still employing those tactics and you're married to someone, like you've probably got issues. <laughs> totally, <laughs> totally. You know? No, that's a key distinction. Yeah, it really is. When I'm, when I'm thinking of those situations, it would be in the very beginning of a, exactly. of a professional relationship. Yeah. And then after, you know, hopefully I succeeded in giving what, what them, they ultimately wanted, right? Yeah. And they got positive feedback about their red carpet thing or the music video. Yeah. Then that trust would be built. And rather than them walking in like, who, who are you? You don't know who I am and exactly. what style I want. Yeah. They would start to be more receptive and it would become more collaborative, right? Yeah. And there was, you know, less of those tactics were necessary. That's very true. I think by now most of us know that minerals are important, but it's really tough to know which minerals to take without knowing what you need. And mineral imbalance is a huge issue, so guesswork is pretty sketchy. Wouldn't it be great to know not only what minerals you need and which mineral levels are too high? Well, I recently found a very cool way to accurately test all of that and take the guesswork and wasted supplement spending out of the equation. I'm talking about upgraded formulas, upgraded hair test, and consultation. It's really fast and easy to do. You just cut a couple small hair samples, mail it in, and then book your consultation, during which one of their expert staff explains your mineral levels and even your heavy metal toxicity. We just sent in my wife Allison's test and got some good and not so good news. She was luckily very low in lead and mercury, which is awesome, but we also found high aluminum, which is less than ideal. Luckily, her mineral levels look super solid overall, but her magnesium levels were a bit high and her selenium a bit low. So with that accurate information at hand, we did a heavy metals detox protocol to get that aluminum down and also determined that she does not need to supplement magnesium for the time being, but that it would do her some good to up her selenium intake. And not only does upgraded formulas have you covered on the test and consultation, but they also happen to make the best absorbed nanominerals I've ever found. Getting your minerals right can sort out hidden deficiencies that are affecting thyroid, adrenal, and many other systems in your body. So I highly recommend you check out the test and consultation at upgradedformulas.com. Now, you can also save 15% off your first purchase by using the code Luke at checkout. That link, again, is UpgradedFormulas.com. And I think it's a nice thing just, you know, in the nature of doing this podcast for people to go, oh, okay, where is there the absence of trust in the relationships that are important to me, at least? And of course, it doesn't have to be Joe Brown on the street. But, 
you know, if there's that absence of the ability to be fully self-expressed in a way that's authentic and honest, then there's something to look at, you know, because there's going to be a, a fundamental fear that is either something about the way that you feel you can't express yourself or the concern for how someone's going to react. And either way, that's a threat response. And, and I would actually invite people then to consider, as I often say, then you don't actually have a relationship. Right? So I just did the little stage event here and I had someone come up and she was very kind about talking what she's dealing with. I had everyone think of a problem or two in their life and I wanted to help them see they don't have any problems. They have a conversation about reality. And, <laughs> you know, and it just it dissolves the whole construct of a problem, right? You've got circumstance and then you've got resistance to it. That's what you call a problem. Yeah. It's yeah. not over there in the circumstance. Right? Oh, that's good. Yeah, <laughs> I like that. So, so she very kindly got up and was talking about this current situation for her. It was about whether she's got the right partner or not. And she was very vulnerable and it was great and it was very helpful for the group. And what I pointed out is I said, so in your analysis and you're like, I get it, you're trying to figure things out and whatever the context was for her to try to figure things out, like the future, family, whatever, uh, I said, you're actually in a relationship with your own mind as it relates to who you think he could or should be. So you're not actually in a relationship with the person with whom you're sort of studying as to whether you should be in a relationship with them. And for her, it was quite pivotal. She's like, wow. And I said, yeah, don't worry. It's like most people. They're in a relationship with their own mind and not with the actual human. And invariably, the relationship, unfortunately, is quite deleterious, right? Because it's like they should do this or they shouldn't have done that. There's these sort of regrets and resentments because of history and is it like you, you're no longer even present to be with the person that you're apparently in a relationship with so it gets very complex at that level but having that understanding of like this the sort of the sliding scale the gradient of trust and for people to even just from this hopefully be a little more aware of it it's like oh who is it with whom i feel the most free to express myself authentically and that that's a great place to use as a reference point and for most people, the degree to which they can truly be themselves, or at least what's real for them at this moment, it's amazing how many people feel this sort of thwarted energy and inhibition to being able to just say what it is. And, and I invite people to, you know, look at that because it's a shame because then you're either being stingy with yourself and your true feelings, and you're certainly not really connected and have that affinity that I say we all want. We want to have that, that bond and that love and acceptance. So... The whole thing about trust and it, the strategy is just a beautiful segue for people to go, oh, wow, like it's amazing. When I'm with my best friend, I can sit around in my boxer shorts and talk about anything. But even when I'm with my own mom, you know, somebody might be saying, there's so much I hold back because I don't want to upset her or I don't think she approves of me. And I'm like, well, that, that dynamic right there means you're not actually in a relationship. And that might be worth something fine that's, for. That's very interesting. I like that perspective. It's sort yeah. of like the roles that we find ourselves mm -hmm. uh, enshrined in, right? Yeah. And as you start to break out of those roles, I've observed this in my own experience, it becomes much more noticeable when other people are caught in their role. Mm -hmm. And I, I experience this most profoundly when someone's in a uniform, for example. Okay, like a police officer? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Chasing you? Yeah, or just there's a guy at my local uh, Kinko's FedEx office. Uh -huh. And it's strange because he's like a young guy. He's got like fully, you know, tatted arms and stuff. You know, he seems like he'd be a normal guy. You could just kind of treat normally. But every time I go in there, I'm like, hey, what's up, dude? And I just try to be like, Mm -hmm. personal and real with him. And he has this persona that he puts on. I'm not judging him. It's just an observation, but yeah. it's the role of the guy that works at FedEx. Hello, sir. Right. How are you? What can I help you with today? I'm like, hey, how's it going, dude? Like, just right. chill. You know, like, yeah, I want to send this thing. 
And I try to break him out of that role just as a fun exercise, you know, and he will not budge out of that role. And, right. You know, I respect his professionalism and whatever's motivating him to do that. But yeah. it's, it's just interesting to observe. And then I can reflect and go, oh, you know, what roles am I still playing? Am I playing the role of spiritual guy or biohacker guy mm-hmm. or podcast host guy? Where am I sort of drifting from my authenticity? And yeah. am I behaving differently or coloring my persona according to external inputs, like who Mm -hmm. I'm around. If I'm around a certain ethnic group, am I trying to like relate to them more or, you know what I mean? Yeah. Or am I, am I treating the CEO different than the janitor or can I just learn to have the integrity of authenticity and just be the same Luke to the best of my ability, no matter what the circumstances are. Beautiful. And not have a role. Yeah. And be be malleable enough to allow myself to evolve without yeah. without a role and to be able to discard them like the roles we were talking about in terms of having a title. Yeah. It's that fun. Is. It makes life dynamic. Oh, it is. And it also makes you present, right? Because even in the absence of perhaps the freest version of you, like you notice like in front of a person in uniform or the CEO that perhaps you make some subtle adjustments, even if you're playing the game, you're aware of those too, right? So it's sort of that self-reflective ability to be able to, you know, see where am I playing a part that I think is appropriate for the environment I just stepped into, which is a reactive mindset. I'm not saying it's wrong, but it's reactive, right? So one of my most popular quotes, I say, life will present you with people and circumstance to reveal where you're not free. And to me, that's the whole paradigm, right? So you're going to be presented with people and circumstance to reveal where you're not free. So in the context of the game that you play, which I love, the opportunity for Luke which of course we now know is not who you are, it's just a sound, (laughs) is where are you being triggered, which we could equate to not being free, right? So even even with the guy at FedEx, which sounds like sort of almost noble and part of your conscious elevation role, right? It's, is there the absence of your own freedom that is something for you to look at versus like he's being professional, right? I mean, this goes down the rabbit hole, which is why yeah. I'm so excited to just sit with you. I feel we're sort of overdue for this conversation. But yeah. it's, it's the distinction between what I fundamentally call a reactive life or a creative life. And so most people are living a reactive life, which is based on you know past uh, constructs and programming that they're invariably trying to get away from. Right? I'm reacting to the fact that in my previous relationship with somebody, it didn't go well, and or even my father didn't express that much love, so I'm going to become the most loving father. And I've heard that from many people. Or, you know, I got my heart broken in the last relationship, so I'm going to make sure that I'm a little bit more protective. So it's always informed by history, which means there's actually no evolution. And, and that, to me, is like one of the most like depressive energies to be in because you're basically sort of a groundhog day uh, in your mind creative is that I am the actual source, S-O-U-R-C-E, of existence. And so it becomes like I speak reality into the world versus perceive a world, which is still my own perception, and then speak into it. So it's, it's, it's subtle, but it's profound. So that way, as I use language again, I say words, you start to realize they're actually creative, not descriptive. And when you really get that, it's so subtle. Oh, but interesting. Yeah. So descriptive being sort of already past tense. You're describing how your mother-in-law acts right. or you're describing how your spouse is. And so nothing wrong with this, 
but it means you're actually, you know, to use a metaphor, you're driving your car and always looking in the rearview mirror. And then you wonder why you keep running into shit, right? Which you've probably heard before. So it's sort of, we're being informed by history and I can describe the events of my heart, my, 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 my relationships or my career or the things that have happened. But I invite people to consider what would it be like if you realize that like abracadabra, you know, that expression mm-hmm. and you know, it's translation is as I speak, so I create. Is oh, what I didn't it actually, know that. Yeah. Magic. That's cool. Isn't that cool? So wow. abracadabra. So as I speak, so I create. And I can remember being in London. I, my mind is, I, why it's gone there, I don't know. I haven't thought of this one moment for a long time, but this is about 20 years ago. And I was working with someone at this beautiful golf club and spa. And I was helping her understand how in the way she was speaking to me, she kept creating the container that she was apparently there to see me to get out of, right? Because her language kept reinforcing the very issue which is invariably the case, you know, sort of whatever you focus on tends to sort of exacerbate. So we got through a point where she'd broken through some of that and the lock and the key metaphor, she saw the lock, I used the key and she's like, oh, and she just had to excuse herself and go and use the washroom. And she came back in with this big smile on her face and I was like, wow, you know, that was either like your bladder was really full and you're incredibly relieved or you just had some epiphany. And she's like, no, I was just like, I just saw what you were saying. She said there was another woman in the, in the bathroom with me and as she went to get some paper towels to dry her hands, she knocked something over. And she said, oh, I'm just so clumsy. But because of the new point of reference, the person I was helping, she, she saw like she was creating her reality. Now, she was probably like in mid-40s, but maybe when she was seven, eight, nine, her parents had said, oh, you're so clumsy. And she took that on as a form of programming as part of her identity. But this woman, because of her new lens that she's looking at, she's like, wow, I just saw that she created right there that she's clumsy. No, you just knock something over. Right. <laughs> but did you, it's like in the Matrix, it's like that scene where he goes to see the Oracle. It's so powerful. And, you know, she says, and don't worry about the vase. I don't know if you've seen that, but Neo's yeah. standing there. So she says, and don't worry about the vase. And then because he's like, well, what vase? He turns and knocks it over. Right. Right. <laughs> right, right. So it's, that, it's so powerful to understand how the words are actually creating the container in which we live that then we become confined with. And then we're trying to escape, not realizing that we're the ones that actually created it. I've literally never met anyone in my life who doesn't like a little sex from time to time. In fact, some folks like it a lot of the time. The thing is that for men, their physical readiness is an important part of making this happen. Remember the last time you were at the gas station and you saw on the counter those horribly branded erection pills? Did you ever take a second to see what's actually in those products? They are terrible for you. Just super toxic. And the same goes for most of the medication on the market that claims to help men in the bed, but who wants a four-hour erection, nasty side effects, heart problems, and a possible trip to the hospital to get rid of that thing? Well, luckily for me and maybe some of the men listening, I recently found this really cool product called Joy Mode that fills this gap. It's a performance booster, much like a pre-workout, but for sex. It's really cool. Joy Mode's gig is that they make natural and science-backed sexual wellness supplements for men. Their sexual performance booster is designed to support erection quality and firmness and sex drive. It contains clinically supported doses of L-citrulline, arginine, yohimbine, and vitamin C. To get yourself primed with the old joy mode, all you do is tear open the sachet and mix it with a glass of water, just like your favorite electrolytes. And uh, about 45 minutes later, it's going to be magic time. You'll notice better blood flow, better erection quality and firmness, and increased sexual energy and drive. I've actually taken this product myself many times, and uh, frankly, I was shocked that it actually worked, 
and provided zero side effects. Do you gentlemen want to spice things up in the bedroom and boost your sexual performance? And do you want to do it naturally without those nasty prescription drugs? Well, we've got a special offer for Lifestylist listeners right here. Go to usejoymode.com Luke and enter the code Luke at checkout for 20% off your first order. That's usejoymode.com Luke. How did you get into who you are and the work that you do? What's, what's your background? Um, uh, a lot of suffering is <laughs> my background. Um, no, my, my, I'd say like it was all kidding aside, there were certain events that I went through that were so pivotal at, in ways that I didn't understand at the time. So my mom passed when I was seven. Uh, my dad died when I was 17, went to work one day, never came back. And I was an only child. So I was orphaned before I was even 18. And at that point, I got to have what I would assert is the visceral experience of what most people experience psychologically. And by that, I mean the identity that we associate ourselves with, we can call the ego, is by design a separate entity, right? So someone can be married or they can even have family, but their experience of life is I feel alone, or I feel lonely, I feel isolated. Even though, you know, as far as anyone else is concerned, they have a beautiful family, they've got kids and blah, blah. And that's invariably because we're stuck in the lens of our own persona. So for me, it was quite literal because there was no family. Like there was no one. So I sort of had this visceral experience of, of what it means to be alone that wasn't just ego. It was quite literal. And I can remember standing even now, standing in my bedroom as a 17-year-old boy. And I was pretty quiet and shy. I was very quiet and shy as a kid. And it was, you know, I don't want to be melodramatic, but it's like the worst experience any human being can have. Right, because uh, you're familiar with Zach Bush, I'm sure you are. Like, he mm-hmm. talks about the laws yeah. of thermodynamics and the second law is you know, about the entropy that occurs when any body is separated from another one. And so that's why they put people in solitary confinement. It's almost like it's the worst thing that can happen. You know, jail is one thing, yeah. solitary confinement. So Even that, even that study uh, that I've clumsily um, referenced, but a study where they were separated... Um, infants from their their mothers and the infants died yeah you know i forget what the study was but it's 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 a famous study yeah where just the absence of human connection and touch actually caused these infants to perish yeah the and the second law of thermodynamics so so for me it was sort of like my version that at the time as a 17 year old of course i was oblivious to this is all subsequent that i you know had the experience and the study and the wisdom that came to mind and go oh wow so to answer your question i think that was the catalyst one for my own profound experience of suffering, but also the depths of compassion. Because somebody doesn't necessarily have to go there, but I get what they're experiencing just by virtue of the lens they're looking through. So that was pivotal. And then later, like when I was around 29, I had a girlfriend who for me at the time was sort of this quintessential love experience, as best as I understood love, which was very limited. But I was a very loving guy. And we, we dated and it was, there was a series of events that sort of we were on again, off again for a minute. And then we came back together and it was sort of like, oh, this is like, you know, this is the best. And we had a beautiful relationship, probably about a year and a half, two years. And then she left. Uh, you know, I'm missing out a lot of the story. But basically, she, her rationale was that you love me too much. And she said, like, your love is suffocating. And I was still a very sensitive guy, but I was like, wait, that... That doesn't sound like a problem. Like if there's so much love, like, you know, that sounds like a decent problem to have. Not saying it's ideal, but, but, you know, I went through this period of about two months that was really desperate men doing desperate things, calling on my friends. How do I get it back? What do I do? And I literally, I can sleep. I lost weight. 
I wake up. I woke up one night and I actually screamed at my own mind to shut up. Like it was like I wasn't neurotic, but it was it was a trying time. Anyway, um, cut to I was just sitting at my desk in a rent control apartment in Santa Monica, and I had these incessant questions going through my head. One of which is, where is she? Um, is she dating someone already? Will I see her again? And will I ever have love like that? They were the sort of the the, the main pillars of my concerns. And in one like sweep i got the answer to all the questions and it was i don't know where is she i don't know is she dating someone already i don't know will i see her again i don't know and will i have love like that again i don't know and it was so categorically the truth that there was no denying it and for the first time in my life i realized that the very fabric of the life itself is uncertainty and yet, by virtue of being human, based in these principles of insecurity and inadequacy and scarcity, our little brain is always trying to figure out uncertainty, which is exhausting, right? Which you, I know you can relate to knowing your history a little bit and even what you spoke to on the stage, which was so eloquent. We're trying to figure out, which is really, we're trying to find security, which is futile because the nature of life is uncertainty. <laughs> so in that moment, not only did I get the answer to the questions that have been keeping me up at night, but I also saw the actual fabric of life. You know, if you want to get sort of celluloid-like, it was like, you know, I saw the code and the matrix. And I felt a freedom that cascaded through my body in a way that I didn't even know was one possible and that subsequently never left me. Now, I've had glimpses, of course, of dipping back into other things to look at, but it was like, oh, I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen. And for the first time, not only did I realize that the very nature of life is uncertain, the future's unknown, but I was totally okay with that. And it was total peace. And so that really set the stage to come back to your question of like, that was my quote unquote training was life giving me a sort of the proverbial spiritual two by four around the face in a very loving way, but super profound that from that moment forth, I recognized the distinction between the fabric of physics and life and then the design and the structure of an ego, which you have the fabric, which is uncertainty. And then you have the very rudimentary feeling of insecurity of the ego, which wants certainty. And to see the, the conflict and the paradox of the two, and I realize all anyone's looking for is they just want to feel safe as one principle. You know, beyond that, you can call it love or peace or freedom, but they're all synonymous to me. They're all sort of bedfellows. So at that moment, I, they all cascaded through me and... The, the sort of the tipping point of the beauty of the story was I hadn't spoken to this girl for about six weeks. For the first two weeks, we've been talking and I'm like waiting for the, okay, I'll come back or whatever. <laughs> never happened. So the six weeks had gone by. And within 15 minutes of me having that moment, she calls me. And I had a landline. I don't think I even had a cell phone back then. But um, she calls my landline. I pick it up. And she's now crying saying, I miss you so much. And I immediately got the entanglement of the whole thing, right? Because I hadn't, as I was talking about earlier, really been in a relationship with her. The epiphany that hit me, the suffocating love was the adaptation, the coping mechanism that I had for the deep, profound fear of loss because of my mom's and dad's passing. So the love that I had in sort of an inherent way with very loving parents that was ripped away, that left that boy very hurt, was my sort of kryptonite, I will never lose again because that hurts too much. Find love as best as I knew it at the time. So my perfect boyfriend behavioral adaptations, my compensation skills, albeit very authentic, had that undercurrent of real fear. You wouldn't have seen it on the surface, but 
that was the energy that she felt was the suffocation because it wasn't authentic love. And so at that moment, I was actually available because I was no longer trying to control an outcome. In this case with her, I was trying to control the avoidance of something, which is the worst form of control. When you're trying to control an outcome to get something, it's that's subtle energetic differences, but I was trying to avoid something. So she, in ways that she couldn't have consciously known, suddenly calls me within 15 minutes of me having this experience. And she couldn't be further. She was in New Zealand. I was in Los Angeles. I don't know how the hell she got there, but she's literally the antipode on the planet to speak to the power of like, there's no distance in time. So she literally is calling, crying, I miss you so much. And all I got at that moment is like, oh, finally, I'm available to you. (laughs) So that was, I would say, the very foundation of how I got to where I got to. What were you doing professionally at this time? I was a trainer. (laughs) Like a physical, personal trainer? Celebrity fitness trainer. Uh, really? <laughs> no, really, yeah. I was so you, you were living in Santa Monica and... Traveling all around the world with a couple. Uh, they were okay. very, very renowned. I mean, people could Google it in a second. but So yeah, they were making films all over the world. And um, I, I kept them spelt for five years. And how did, how did you fall into that line of work? Um, again, just my karma and my destiny. I was a trainer in Pacific Palisades at a place on PCH and Sunset, which you're probably familiar with. It used to be called Pacific Athletic Club, then it became a Spectrum, and now I think it's a Bay Club, but just opposite uh, Gladstone's there. Mm. And um, I, I had, as my undergrad, studied human biology and exercise physiology. So for me, transforming a body was like a piece of cake. Like it was, I understood the inner end, the chemistry, the biology, like the movement, the biomechanics. So it was almost to the point, like, it wasn't like it was boring, but it's like, really? Like, you need someone to help you? It's like, and then I understood that they, they really did. <laughs> you know. So, um, but a buddy of mine, I was living in this rent control apartment, the very same one that I was talking about, my story. And he said, look, I don't know anyone who knows more about the body than you. Like, if you get certified, I'll give you a job as a trainer. Because I was working, this was prior to my gig as a celebrity trainer. I was working in a bar, like down on near the um, pier. And... You know, it was fun. It was a summer, but it was sort of a little bit below my my pay grade. And <laughs> so I, I was like, okay, fine. I got qualified as a National Academy of Sports Medicine trainer. He gave me a job in the gym. And I was always incredibly hardworking. I didn't have a car. I had to borrow a push bike to get to work from Santa Monica. I was riding up PCH and pouring rain, trucks going by me. I'm like, if ever I make this, this <laughs> is going to be a good story. And um, so, yeah, I, within five months, I'd had such an incredible like roster of clients with great results. Uh, the GM came up to me at one point and she said, we've got two new clients for you. And I was like, sure, bring it on. Like I, I, I actually found a journal from back then and I'm, I'm sort of showing my age. As I said, that was about 20-something years ago. It's about 26 years ago. And I was seeing 13 clients a day. Like that's an hour workout. Like, so I would have my first client at six in the morning and sometimes the last one at eight and somewhere in there, like grab a snack. So I sort of kind of had this quiet admiration for how hard I was working. You know, I didn't have a penny to my name. My parents weren't wealthy. They didn't leave me anything. So um, so anyway, so the, the, the GM, to go back to the point of the story, she came up to me and said, we've got a couple of new clients. I'm like, sure, bring it on. And she said, no, these are very special clients. And she said, they're Bob's clients. And everyone knew Bob because Bob had this celebrity couple as his trainers, but he was a dad and he was tired of all the travel and he had handed in his resignation. They said, well, Going back to the trust thing, we trust you. Would you help us to find a replacement? So I was thrown into the interview pool of about three or four other trainers. And I knew as soon as they mentioned the names, I just intuitively knew I'd get it because he was particularly athletic and I had coached tennis for a while and I was a strong skier and they had a place in the mountains. And I was like, I didn't know, no, but there was an intuitive sense. So 
that was the previous career for five years, traveling around the world and Australia and England and yeah, New York, and it was fun. And how did that evolve into the work that you did now, the, the deeper work, kind of the personal training of the psyche and, and soul as I'm starting to gather? Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, it's interesting to like sit down and have a conversation with you because I don't really know a lot about you. Right. I know that we have many mutual friends yeah. and every time I've seen you, I perceive you to be warm, articulate, kind, intelligent. No. interesting, inspiring. Like there's just an energetic thing. Thank you. But it's it's funny because I really research people before I right. sit down and talk to them usually. And I'm just like, yeah, Peter Crone, everyone knows him. Yeah. I'm like, I actually don't. So this is, <laughs> so we're thank, you, thank you for indulging me. But you know, as, no, you, as you, you were describing to me earlier, you have this, you know, this mastermind program, there's 400 people in it. And I'm like, oh, wow. You know, where did, where did that actually, how did that evolve? Yeah. You know? No, it has been quite like the the speed with which the trajectory, certainly mm-hmm. in that realm of like social media and stuff, that's all happened quite quickly. And I'd assert it's just because of the resonance of what I'm saying. Like it's really hitting people. Like even here, like, you know, like you, like people have very kindly came up to me and they're like, oh, can I get a photo? I love your work. Your work's changed my life. And then there's some people, I was on a panel yesterday who came up and they're like, wow, like there were a couple of things you said that just really hit me and it's just changed everything. So I think that dynamic that's occurring is what's allowing for like, 400 people to sign up to, you know, a not cheap mastermind. And like, you know, it's, it's, it's been nice to be able to reach people in a way that otherwise I wouldn't have been able to do. So, um, so in terms of going from body to mind to soul, like it was sort of a natural progression, right? It's sort of going from the gross to the subtle and realizing the, what I would call that cascade of creation, right? So if somebody has something physiologically going on, I'm going to assert that, like even let's take a skin rash, right? Like it's an external, it's an exogenous expression of something that's going on internally. In this case, they might have too much heat in the blood or they've had too many, you know, spicy foods and like, because part of my work is in Ayurveda. So that also has contributed to my ability to read people and look at their body. And But I, through the lens of these Eastern philosophies, I was like, wow, like if you're really going to look at what someone's dealing with symptomatically, physically, or symptomatically, emotionally, or in their life, you got to understand what was the cascade of events that led to that. And so I just kept going one step deeper and one step deeper and go, okay, well, you have this physical issue, but like, where's that coming from? Oh, okay, you're holding on to a lot of resentment. And that's because of the relationship you have with the, your view of your mother should have been different. And so you're carrying this anger, which is expressing as heat and sometimes it manifests cancer or whatever it might be. And so I just kept going back and back. And then I finally found what I would assert, and this is I'm writing a book and I'm going to delineate the 10 primal prisons of the subconscious. Oh, cool. Yeah. So one of which is like that everyone can relate to is like, I'm not enough, right? And that manifests in different ways. You can either go straight into it and I was actually on a podcast making this distinction and the guy was like, wow, that's, I'd never even thought of that. And I was saying that you look at a homeless person on the street who's you know, succumbed to maybe some booze and then weed and, da, 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 and has progressed to heavier drugs and now has kind of basically lost his life or her life. And then you look at the guy in the corner office who's driving a Mercedes and running around in his Gucci suits. I say, energetically, there's a very strong possibility that they're both being informed by the same prison. It's just one has gone into it and one is constantly trying to deny it. But they're both informed by it. And he's like, whoa. I said, yeah. So the guy who's in the corner office who needs Ambien at night to sleep and he needs a coffee or some sort of energy drink to get going and he doesn't really have a great relationship with his wife or his girlfriend and she's really just sort of a trophy as an extension of him thinking he's not good enough but he wants to be seen with an attractive... You start to see all the dynamics. It looks good on paper, but actually it's not that far different. If we were to look at the actual... 
qualities of their relationships, particularly with the father, usually they're not enough, like, because that's more the disciplinarian energy, is like, oh, wow, like they both had this sort of high school S type dad who, you know, sort of pointed out where their, their insufficiencies were. You know, you, yeah, you went three for five at baseball, but what happened to the other two hits? Or, you know, yeah, like B plus is good, but why didn't you get an A? Like subtle things that people don't, you know, parents don't understand. But for the child, the interpretation is like the inadequacy that then sort of grows like, like a cancer, but emotionally. So um, that, that was really the process of my work was getting back to these fundamental prisons and then recognizing the adaptations that we have from them. So could become a perfectionist or a people pleaser as an adaptation to not being enough. Um, or equally, as I said, you could go right into it like I'm, you know, what's the point? No one gives a shit and I'm just going to end my life, you know. And, and they might seem like extremes, but I would, cons- I would invite people to consider they're on the same continuum. They just manifest differently. People often ask me why I'm so obsessed with red light therapy. I've been doing it for years, and frankly, I plan to continue forever due to its incredible benefits. Thousands, yes, I said thousands, of peer-reviewed research articles have demonstrated the benefits of red and near-infrared light for things like skin health, reduced pain and inflammation, and faster muscle recovery. I love to do my red light first thing in the morning to get the red light I might get from watching the sunrise. And as red light therapies become so popular, there are several different red light therapy companies now, but I personally use and recommend Juve for a few reasons. First, they offer a wide selection of configurations from small handheld devices to large setups that can treat your entire body. I personally use both. Another feature I love with Juve's latest generation of products is something they called ambient mode which utilizes lower-intensity red light designed to be used at night as a healthy alternative to bright blue light, which protects your melatonin levels and, as a result, your sleep. This is what I use in the kitchen at night in our temporary apartment to balance out the blue light of the nasty overhead lighting. So if you want to get down with some red light, Juve has got you covered. And for a limited time, they're offering all my listeners, including you, an exclusive discount on your first order. Just go to juve.com slash Luke and apply my code Luke to your qualifying order. That's J-O-O-V-V dot com forward slash Luke. And of course, some exclusions apply as this is a limited time offer. So hurry up and grab your Juve now. In terms of the manifestations of some of these root issues, what has been your experience of people in the throes of addiction and alcoholism? Yeah. So it gets really deep and, you know, we, we can probably talk another time, but so beyond the 10 prisons, there are what I would consider two sides to the same coin. So I'm not enough is the more positive expression of self-negation of what I call self-negation. So when I'm not something like I was talking about earlier, like somebody has anxiety, their container might be, I'm not safe. And they grew up in a family, as I said, where there was this inconsistency and there was like raised voices or screaming or the dad and the mom would fight. So they created that container. So in the not enough, and this is one of the prisons that I do see with people with addiction, it's the antithesis, but the darker side of it. So you can think that not enough is like, it's bad. Like I'm tired, I'm always trying to be a perfectionist and I'm exhausted and I can never get things da da da. But the flip side is, it's not that I'm not good enough. It's that I am something. So the negation of self is one thing that's hard. But the, the declaration of self as negative, in this case, I am bad, is much darker. 
Do you see that? So yeah, I do. I mean, and, I'm reflecting on my own. My no, own, no, no. I mean, I my get you, own, and I'm not going to do it in front of you. But yeah, like, yeah, 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 yeah. My my own experience reflects that for yeah, sure. Yeah. yeah. So it's like a lot, of, a lot of that rooted in shame, right? Yes. Childhood trauma equating as I'm different. There's something wrong with me. I'm bad. I'm unlovable. I'm yeah. worthless. Yeah. And they're, they're all sort of like these bedfellows. Oh, yeah. That's really interesting. But as it relates to addiction, you know, and I have, I have my own take on addiction. Like the, the quote I use is like, an addiction is something you can never get enough of something that almost works. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so that's that perpetual chase, right? It almost works. Like whatever it is. Like, oh, that felt good for a minute. Because like, right, okay. if it worked, you wouldn't have to keep doing it addictively, right? You'd Precisely. be like, oh, I did heroin one time, took care of it for life. You yeah, know? yeah. So... But the ultimate addiction is what we're speaking to, which is the idea of yourself, right? And in this case, the addiction would not be the substance, but really the trauma that was the catalyst to turn on the self-perception that I'm bad. And sometimes it could be like the literal hearing of that, right? The declaration of a parent of like, oh, you're so bad. I mean, some kids, you know, it breaks my heart, but some kids actually hear things like, you're a mistake. We never wanted you. Like, you can imagine that, right? So that would be really the dark side of you're not loved. Not loved. It's not fun. Like, I don't want to walk around life feeling I'm not loved. But feeling like you're, like, trash or you're discarded is the darker side. Like, I'm not good enough. No, I'm bad. So the declaration of something negative is much heavier than the declaration of something good but negative version of it. Right? Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. So I am bad versus I'm not good. Yeah. Subtle, yeah. Yeah. but very different. So when I work or I've helped people with addictions of any kind, invariably they're in the darker side of the fundamental prison. And that's why invariably the relief that they seek isn't sufficiently found through their own free will, right? Somebody who's not good enough will just keep working themselves to death to become a perfectionist or get the right body. They'll do the surgeries, they'll wear the right clothes, do, you know, but it's, it's still exhausting, but it's not to the point of like complete self-deterioration uh, that can happen in the darker side. So when somebody's in the prison of I'm bad, it just takes a little bit more, you know, compassion, patience, and kindness for them to be able to see that it's still a lie. Basically, what I'm doing is I'm revealing the lie that is the foundation for who you think you are. In your experience, have you seen anyone who is in the throes of legitimate, chronic, acute addiction? Mm-hmm. Gain sustained recovery solely based on self knowledge and self understanding, and and an unraveling of these root causes that you're describing yeah. versus having a direct spiritual experience. Um, I have it's it's few and far between because I make the distinction in my work of there are two predominant stages: one is awareness, and then two is practice. So. You know, for you even, I would assert, as I was speaking there, as you said, it's a resonance and maybe even in the way that I've used some words, it gives a little bit of a cut to all the work you've done, meaning a slightly different angle. It's like, oh yeah, I could see that the way that I've lived, the construct that I've been stuck in is that I am, Luke is fundamentally bad. And then it's like, that's where your foot's nailed. And then you do everything you can to manage that. You know, be a nice guy, be a good boyfriend, try and be nice to your parents or, you know, whatever it is, right? But it's a compensation. Meanwhile, nothing's been addressed. So the awareness is like to bring light to, bring subconscious to conscious. So now I know, oh shit, like I've for 30, 40, 50 years have really not even believed, but who I've been is bad. It's not something I believe, it's who I am in my personality. And that's why people can't escape it. That's the ultimate addiction, right? It's like, you're not walking around going, hi, I'm Luke, I'm bad. 
but you're concerned about like, okay, well, I don't want to give this guy this clothing even though I know it's better for him because I don't want him to get mad and then I look bad and then I don't have my job, right? That's how it presents. So when you start to see the awareness part, oh, wow. Like I've like, and I can remember the moment and the, the moments that continually got reinforced. My dad said this, the teacher said that, my girlfriend said that. And it's like continuing this narrative of who I am fundamentally is bad. That's the awareness. And the relief that comes from that, because then I'll take people through an exercise and I'll say, okay, well, where am I going to find that? Like, is it part of your manufacturing label? You know, it's like, it's not a truth. It's a story and you've got all the evidence to support it. Then it's like the practice of who would you be in the absence of that constraint. And that's the, the invitation to become a new person, which isn't easy, you know, because it is the death process of the, the constraint that you were in. I literally, when I'm working with somebody, as they see the possibility and the freedom and the relief, their breathing patterns, their physiology, if I was monitoring their blood pressure, all of that would change. They literally are becoming physically a different person by virtue of the fact they're looking through a different lens. It's beautiful. But, the habituation of the pattern itself, as you know, has still got momentum. And so that's the practice part, is to, just like when I worked with actors, it was fun because they were doing this for a profession. They would have to take on a character with all the different idiosyncrasies of that character. And if they did it well, we as a viewing audience bought into it. Tom Hanks plays a gay guy dying of AIDS in Philadelphia. You know, and he gets an Academy Award. He did it that well. But deep down, he knows... He's straight, he's married, and he doesn't have HIV. So, but the the depth of these constraints are much harder to overcome because they started at age three, five, seven. And normally they've got 20, 30 years of like progressive reinforcement. So that's where the practice of like, who would you be in the absence of that previous constraint? Oh my God, I I don't even know. I'd feel so free. I I feel light, right? And then you start Mm -hmm. to live from that place and that becomes your new persona. That that last piece right there, who would you be without that, reminds me of Byron Katie, you know? I don't know if yes. you're familiar with her yeah, work. Yeah, She's yeah, I've seen a some of her prior stuff. guest on the show. And yeah. Her work is just, it's profoundly simple and effective in yeah. equal measure. Yeah. It's like, okay, um, you know, I'm mad at Peter because, um, you know, he embarrassed me in front of this person. And then yeah. the inquiry in her questions is, is that true? Yeah. Did he embarrass you? Well, yeah, he embarrassed me. Is that really true? Right. right. You kind of go down this yeah. thread. Yeah. And ultimately with most situations you arrive at, well, I can't really, really know that to be true. Yeah. Right. Perhaps I just had a feeling inside and I perceived it to be that he said something to downplay my significance or something. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Then at the end of that inquiry is who would you be without that thought? Got it. Who would yeah. you be without that belief? Yeah. And that's I, I love watching her work with people. I I think I saw her in the early '90s for the first time when I was still like wildly addicted and insane. Yeah. There was something in those in the process that she went through with people on stage where I was just like, I don't know what she's doing, <laughs> but I like it. Yeah. You know, I couldn't quite grasp it, but it's yeah. it's at that moment. Who would you be without that? Well, I would be. Gosh, I would be free. I would be fulfilled. I would uh, be in love. I would experience joy, you know? And then in in that moment is almost like, well, why the fuck are you hanging on to (laughs) what you believe to be true that's likely not, you know? And sometimes it's just like a simple little frame shift like that. Yeah, that seems that seemingly on its surface insignificant, but subjectively to the person having that realization can move a mountain. It's so impactful and that's the ultimate addiction, right? And it's where, again, I use a lot of expressions and quotes. I say you can't be held accountable for that which you're oblivious to. 
And that's where the compassion comes in, right? Because people will point fingers. Oh, you shouldn't do this. And you shouldn't. Well, if you had your, their conditioning, you'd be doing exactly the same thing. So I would never have the audacity to tell people what to do, but I can point out why they're doing it. And then they can become empowered in the way that they say, oh, I've been doing that forever. Yeah, well, it's because you live in this fundamental construct of some form of negation that you're not this or you're bad. And so that's the ultimate addiction. And that's where being able to in, in sort of inquire into the truth of that. So there is definitely a correlation. Someone has actually mentioned that before they saw my work. And I, you know, I, I, I love the correlation because I've seen some of her stuff too. And I think we do it slightly differently, but it's really a fundamental inquiry into the, the, the truth of your own perspective because it's a lie. You know, yeah. that's ultimately why it can't be sustained um, over, you know, whether it's life, one lifetime or many lifetimes because you're, you're, the primordial imperative of any organism is to survive. But in this case, the, e the ego survival is based on its own identity because it's fictitious. So in order to sustain the identity <laughs> of the ego, <laughs> that, that hit you, right? Yeah, that's great. <laughs> Isn't that great? Yeah. So you have to constantly either tell the story, like I was saying, words are descriptive for most people, which is they sustain the story. They get to be right consistently. Or you have to keep manifesting environments and circumstances to give validation to your own story. Because that's, that's the way that the ego sustains its existence is being right about its own perception. And it was the most fascinating thing in my work, having done this for two decades, is like, wow, I just keep seeing that people would actually rather be right about their inadequacy than just be free. Totally. <laughs> it's like a course in miracles. You have to make the decision. You're invited to make the decision. Would you rather be right or would you rather be happy? Right. Yeah. You know, that, that one principle for me has been so impactful. I mean, I think yeah. I had to hear it once and it was like, ah... It's one of those things that lodges in the subconscious and find myself in the midst of a conflict in which, God, I just got to win. I have to teach them. I have right. to show them. Even if they don't know I won, I need to feel like I won. It's like, God, all, all I'm looking for in that victory or perceived victory is just a sense of relief and peace. But yeah. I could have that by just stopping the fight. You know what I mean? Another Byron Katie thing that's great. She says the um, defense is the first act of war. Yeah. You know, it's like so much of the stuff that we struggle with is just, we perceive it to be at times a war with other people or circumstances. But as you indicated earlier, this is all just this inner dialogue. It's this inner war yeah. that we're fighting only because we don't know that we're doing it. And that's where the compassion comes in, which is why mm -hmm. I said you can't be held accountable for that which you're oblivious to. And I think for a lot of people, that helps to shift, even in people that they are in relationships with or they love. They can see their, man their mannerisms, their idiosyncrasies, but they're looking from a position of judgment. And I think it's one of the greatest shames in relationships because people will verbally say, I love the person or even to them, I love you. But energetically, there's this subtle judgment. They're making them wrong for something. And in that sort of, there's a disparity. There's the delta between what I'm proclaiming is love, but actually my energy and my approach and my behavior around you is actually is quite quite judgmental. And so when you really see that, it's like, and I saw that with the girl that I was talking about as was sort of the catalyst for my own awakening if we want to call it that, sounds a bit melodramatic, but it was pretty pretty profound. So I had, in ways that I didn't even know, as a very loving, kind guy, very generous, I had actually been making her wrong subtly, not like overtly. I, we'd never fought. I wouldn't say things. But energetically, there was this question of like, well, how, why, why isn't she getting a job? Or why isn't she helping out? Or, you know, some people might be as mundane as like, why aren't they taking the trash out? But, you know, that's a form of like, Warfare, to use your, your, the term from Katie, it's like because you're in resistance with reality. And that really is the, the bedrock of all suffering, is that I'm in fundamental conflict with the way things are. 
And we think it's very, it's very sort of uh, enticing and tantalizing to think that it's out there. Like, no, no, I'm really upset because of what they said. Well, if you break down the physics of that, that's actually impossible. <laughs> you really to understand the mechanics of how you have an experience. It's like they did something. If they were speaking Chinese and they said the same words, but you didn't understand, you wouldn't have got upset, right? So the, the same data points are out there, but the way that you're interpreting it through these fundamental prisons as a perceived threat is what's generating your own internal terrain shifting into what you're calling I'm pissed off. But it's not because of something. And, and uh, when you really get that, it's so empowering because I'm no longer a victim of anything. It doesn't mean I condone behavior. It doesn't mean I want certain things. But I'm, I personally, in the way that I attend to my internal state, don't want to be a victim of somebody else's behaviors. It's like that, um, that <clears throat> tendency that we sometimes have to say, well, you made me feel... <laughs> right, right. You made me mad. You yeah. made me this. You know? And I love that when someone says that it's funny to me because you think... Yeah. All right, Peter, right now I'm going to make you be angry. It's like yeah. I literally cannot cause a feeling to take place in your physiology, mind, body, emotion. Like I do not have the power to make you feel anything. Right. But right. your interpretation of the words that I use, the sounds that I make vocally, yeah, have the ability to do that within yourself. That's a huge like I mean, if anyone can just get that, you know, that's huge. It's massive. Cuz that with that responsibility that we can take for our own inner experience comes like absolute power to change and to be to become free or at least one of the key steps if if not you know the yeah. whole kahuna is the mastery over one's perception yeah i remember first hearing about the medicinal plant kratom years ago as a potential social mood lifter and even natural painkiller for those of you that have never heard of it, kratom is an all-natural herb related to the coffee plant that's been used in Thailand for centuries. But even though kratom piqued my interest, I gotta be honest, I was nervous to try it due to it being sold exclusively in sketchy smoke shops and dark web internet sites when I first discovered it. And as a recovering opiate addict, I also had some fears around its reputation as a natural opiate, and I feared I might get addicted, and I definitely wanted to avoid that. Well, fast forward to now some seven years later, and I find myself using Kratom both safely and somewhat regularly. The key for me was in finding a brand I could trust, and one that only uses pure leaf and not dangerous extract. And the brand that I found and use today is called Super Speciosa. These guys use only the top 1% of Kratom produced in the world and boast some of the highest alkaloid levels in the industry, which means it's more powerful and works. Plus, they only use one ingredient, pure kratom leaf, and are rigorously tested for purity and safety. Now, personally, I use Super Speciosa for so many applications, such as relaxation and social settings, but also as a pre-workout, and even as a nootropic for work, focus, and creativity. Kratom is strange and unique, as it helps energize your mind and relax your body at the same time. It's pretty incredible. So if you're going to check it out, for beginners, I recommend their signature Super Speciosa strain. To try Kratom and get 20% off your entire order, here's what you do. Go to getsuperleaf.com Luke, and if you use the promo code Luke, you'll save 20% off your entire order. Again, that's getsuperleaf.com Luke, and the 20% off code is also Luke. So can I invite you to step into a bit of freedom with me? Yeah, let's do it. So taking the same principle, 
You yeah. you just you just pointed out the darker side. Like, you know, I can't make you angry. Yeah. But I'm going to take you back to the FedEx store. Okay. So now what you just shared with me, which was super accurate, and I said, Stu, where can you see you're playing the same game, albeit it looks like the more philanthropic version? Hmm. I don't know. So you said I can't make I can't change your mm-hmm, feelings, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Like you can't make me angry, which mm-hmm. might look like like that's a more hostile approach to manipulation. Mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. I'm trying to piss them off. I'm trying to press the button. We could argue that as the conscious elevator, that when you go into the FedEx store, you see this guy who's stiff and how are you? And he's very professional. But there's a subtle judgment, albeit with as I said, philanthropic. <laughs> yeah, okay, yeah. You got it now? Yeah, totally. Totally. Yeah. And awesome. it's 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 funny because <laughs> Almost, okay, there's two sides of this. One side is just as a human uh, behavior experiment. Yes. And just to test uh, sort of the, um, the power of love and the power of, of kindness. Yes. I'll, as I'm out of my day, see if I can elicit a different experience with and for someone. Yes. But in a situation like that, there is an element of judgment. You're absolutely right. Because I walk in there, I'm like, you fucking stiff. Like, come on, act normal. (laughs) Thank you for being honest. Yeah, 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 there's an element of control. Like, no, be who I want you to be. Because I'm free and authentic and just being me. Then you need to join me in that. Or otherwise, you're a stiff. (laughs) And you're boring me at FedEx. Thank you. Be for, interesting. Thank you for the invitation that I offered to let me find you, help yeah. you find some freedom. So what yeah. you just said there is so beautiful, and it's the most authentic, you know, version of that story, right? Which is like, what if the FedEx fucking... guy like listens to my podcast? Because there's only one guy with tattoos, you know. <laughs> Sorry, I apologize for my judgment of you. Forgive me. It will be the segue to a beautiful conversation where you can even be more vulnerable with him and apologize for your behavior. So there's so beautiful, and that's why I gave you the the benefit of the doubt and said it's a more philanthropic version, right? It's like yeah. a mother who wants her child to be happier. It looks like it's well-intended, but for where that person is based on the trajectory of their karma, they're not happy at this moment. And so it's where can we find somebody where they are? And what's even more subtle in your story is there's before you walk into the FedEx office itself, there's a, there's a sort of predisposition in your preparation, which means you're stuck in your history. So the guy doesn't even have a chance. So now you've right. lost you've lost your moment to be where you are. Because I already have a perception of him as the stiff that never breaks to my my generous <laughs> kindness. Yeah. <laughs> right? So and now it, we get yeah. to see you, not him. So what what's exposed in that sort of subtle and under the guise of loving, I want to be da-da-da, which which is all valid, but yeah. it's still got a subtle energy of manipulation. So what does that say about your persona? What what is the underlying current? What are you really trying to achieve there? Hmm. I don't know. What comes to me is like a sense of control. That's yeah. That's the mechanism. Okay. But what's the what's the intended outcome? Hmm. What would what would it provide Luke if he was more happy go lucky and free and loving? Hmm. I don't know. I guess just. Uh... A greater sense of ease yeah. and fluidity. Yeah. I would assert you'd feel more comfortable, you'd feel more safe, Yeah, you'd feel more seen, which we could put under a bigger umbrella of uh, I'd feel more free and loved. So mm-hmm. if that's the intention and that's the uh, desired outcome and the agenda of your you know, subtle control, w- what are you actually therefore reinforcing if that's what you're trying to get? <laughs> 
Mm, the converse of that. Which is? Uh, contraction. Yeah. And uh, yeah, that's the word that comes to me. Kind of yeah. uptight. Yeah, Up, uptight constriction, which is what I'm judging him about. <laughs> it's like no. that's the thing. Yeah, that's the annoying thing about the guy. And I'm not really annoyed, but no, as no, an no, exercise, just, you yeah, know, absolutely. We're I exaggerating have, everything. But. I have 100 have a judgment. Like, come on, dude. Like, I've been in here ten times. Like, act normal and this be is the a, way I want you to be because yeah. this is not fun. This is boring. Right. And this is why this is so beautiful. And I'm so happy that you're just who you are and you're so available. Because the irony is your judgment of him is that he's not being free. Mm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, the very space from which you're coming is not free. Right. Because you're not allowing him just to be whoever he is. Right. Yeah. And yeah so, so this is that subtle victory. This is so good. And I really hope you get something from this and maybe you'll rewatch it. But like your such beautifully intended outcome is that what you're saying is, in order for me to be free, I need you. It's personified in one guy. Really, it's going to be everywhere, mm -hmm. you know, because it's obviously going to be a trigger for you. I need everybody else to be free and act in a certain way because I really want, I'm free and I'm committed to being free. But the subtle energy is I'm actually not free. And until you're free, I can't be free. Right, right. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. you keep perpetuating. That's, that's the ultimate addiction. That's really good. So now yeah, we get to, cool. so awesome. So now my question is is it true, yes or no? that you can't be fully free in the presence of somebody who's not free. Is it true? Can, so I'll phrase it differently. Mm -hmm. So is it true that you can't be free whilst he's occurring to you as quite stiff? Is it true? Well, in the ultimate reality, no. Yeah. But based on that <laughs> dynamic... Based on your current conditioning, I got yeah, it. Yeah. But in terms of the bigger picture... Because this is the invitation, right? This is yeah. the awareness we're stepping into. It's like, yeah. wow, I thought that I was doing the conscious elevation part and I'm like the almighty guy walking in here, like bringing freedom to this cat who's so stiff and he, uh, He's not interested in my freedom. <laughs> he's more free than you are because yeah, right? he's not trying to change anything. Yeah, but he's, he's happy being in his role. Because there's a certain degree of obviously being oblivious, right? Like mm -hmm. sort of, so as you continue to go through these different tiers of awareness, it sort mm -hmm. of becomes more subtle. So, but I just love, love that we're having this conversation because it just speaks volumes about your commitment to your own freedom. Otherwise, this wouldn't be occurring, yeah. which is like, oh my God, like I'm the guy judging, I'm the stiff, I'm the one who's not free because I'm not okay with the way he is, which right. is the absence of freedom. Right. Oh, that's so good. <laughs> Thanks, Bailey. That's so good. Yeah. I love it. So now, what is the possibility for Luke going into metaphorical FedEx store? What, what do you see now, right now, as being possible in the absence of the need to make anybody other than the way they are at that moment? Well, I think a, actually an appreciation for the phenomenon of someone playing a role and yeah. just the observation of that and just an acknowledgement <laughs> that that's okay and doesn't need to change and that yeah. maybe even just to enjoy that <laughs> as an experience yeah. like or a curiosity. I wonder what's going to happen today there when I go. go in and there's a guy that I formerly judge is kind of stiff that I can never get to just be real with me or be yeah. free with me, right? Yeah. Wouldn't so, it be interesting if I go in there without any expectation, 
And then all of a sudden, he starts being really free with He's me. like, hey, dude, like, yeah. are you, I see you all the time. You want to grab a beer sometime? Yeah, yeah. Like, wait, like that would be a shock to your previous conditioning. Yeah, totally. Whereas now it's available. And that's what the portal is to possibility. Because yeah. you, you said it, curiosity, what to me is in the absence of the need to try and control things, you actually step into what I would say is more like the childlike sense of exploration of like, let's see what happens. And there's a joy about that. Mm-hmm. You don't know to what degree he might be listening to a podcast. He might be in a fight with a wife. He might be sitting down with a therapist. And it's a catalyst for him to suddenly see something about the way he shows up at work. And you don't know that. But if you walk in with your previous conditioning, which is all based in history, for that reason, it's stagnant, which gives you heaviness. And that only reinforces the need to think that, well, shit, by now I got to get the guy free because you're the one carrying the weight. Versus if you continue to be in harmony with this moment and not know what's going to happen, then it's always a fresh opportunity to just discover what's actually going to transpire. Yeah, much more interesting. Isn't that beautiful? Peter, where does, and we, we have a few minutes left here because I yeah. know you have to catch a plane. Um, you know, in, in all of this <clears throat> framework that you're creating, cultivating, exploring here today yeah. with me and our listeners, where does your... Where does spirituality fit into this framework? Where does God fit into this framework? Where does you know the power, the driver of the change come from outside of just a psychological, intellectual mm-hmm. understanding and you know, like wordplay and observation and all these different perspectives? Is there in your life or in the, in the core of your work? Is there a spiritual core or a practice or yeah, or something that is um, contributing from that point of energy? All of what we just discussed to me is from that space. Mm. Like, so the distinction I make is between the absolute and the relative. What we've been talking about is the relative, but we need the relative to access the absolute. Absolute to me is interchangeable with God or consciousness or spirituality. The mm-hmm. unified nature of life is to me spirituality or God. There's mm-hmm. no separation. The relative, like I was saying earlier, my experience as a 17-year-old standing in the room whose parents have died, is the relative. I'm by myself. And so, Luke, the individual idea of yourself is the one that's trying to change his environment in order to feel comfortable. But when you're part of the environment, then there's nothing to change. Mm -hmm. And in fact, we could argue that the attempt to change everything around you is itself that catalyst for suffering because you're basically in denial of reality. Everything is the way it is. Like one of my quotes, again, I say, everything is the way it is, but only always. Right? Mm -hmm. But then to what degree are people always trying to change the way things are? Now, that does not deny the fact that you can be committed to something. Like someone's building a building or they're building a business or they're committed to a beautiful relationship and they see a future trajectory. Amazing. And again, I say, you know, we're all works, we're all masterpieces yet works in progress, right? So it allows for both. But if people don't have the fundamental acceptance and harmony with the way things are, then they're going nowhere rapidly. So it's, it's that to me is the fabric of spirituality. That is, without using words, to me, that's exactly where I function from. Mm-hmm. Is that there's no problem, everything's unified, and all I'm doing <laughs> is dissolving what the perception is that's in the way of that. Like, again, I say everybody's free. Everyone's a free spirit pretending they're not free. Mm-hmm. So it's like the, the framework <clears throat> underneath the way you explore and the way you work with people. I guess you could say, um, let's see if I can articulate this. It's like the context yes. is consciousness yes. manifest as truth, say, right? And then mm-hmm. the content is the kind of the meandering and the mechanics of how we arrive at that truth. Yes. Would that there, be fair? Fair enough. And, there are, and I would just add that there are different levels of context. 
Mm-hmm. So what I spoke to earlier about these 10 primal prisons, I call them context. If you live in the context of I'm not enough, it will inextricably give rise to the way you think, feel, act, and the results you get as a direct extension of that context. Mm-hmm. Context is definitive. Right? When we're in this room and it's like, you know, 200 square feet or whatever, like we're not going to throw the Olympics in here. It doesn't, hmm. give, it doesn't allow for that, right? So similarly, the framework of words, going back to how we started this with language, is like the lock and the key. Most people live within a context that's very confining called I'm not enough or I'm not safe. And then they manage their life within that. It's like living in this like, you know, rent control apartment that I was in. So, but it's psychological. Spirituality or God is the realm beneath that, which is pure possibility. There is no limit. But we create constructs, which at times can be helpful. You know, I often say freedom without structure is chaos, right? So you can also start to see that if there's no structure, that's like, you know, when you get pulled out of the pod in the matrix and you don't know who the hell you are because you've been pulled out of time and space. But that is the new paradigm to step into where everything's available. So even for you now, what we did is we removed to a certain degree a context called things need to be a certain way for Luke to be okay which we could track back to life, right? To, you know, we're not going to get into it today. But mm-hmm. like that little boy is under the impression that in order for him to feel safe and free, he needs people to act a certain way. And now it's just manifesting in a subtler, obviously not such an impactful way. Mm-hmm. But uh, to me, it's the same thread. So that's a context. But beneath, if things didn't need to be a certain way for you, you dip into a bigger context, which is the realm of pure acceptance mm-hmm. and pure, pure possibility that you don't know who's going to be on the other side of that FedEx door or that restaurant door or wherever. And that then becomes a life of joy and exploration. That's awesome. Thank you. I knew we were going to have fun. Yeah. I I didn't even know you were going to be here this weekend, you know, and I saw you and I was like, oh man, we got to make this happen. Yeah. Uh, So cool. So glad we got to drop in. Yeah. The the great thing about doing uh, this thing that I do is I feel that I really can speed up my getting to know someone in in the cultivation of relationships. Like I know next time I see you or run into each other, perhaps we're in contact for whatever reason, to hang out or talk business or whatever it is. It's like, we we could save like two weeks of small talk. Yeah. Right? Because I'm just like, I feel that I'm understanding the essence of who you are and what you do, um, which is just fantastic. So thank you for spending time with us. I have one uh, question for you. And that is, well, it's a three-parter. Who have been three teachers or teachings that have influenced your life and your work that you'd like to share with us today? That's a good, I have never had that one. Um, I'd like to start with my dad because he, in a way that I was oblivious at the time, taught me the essence or the quality of unconditional love. Right? As I'm a kid, you, know, you could say 15, 16, 17, but I'm still a kid. And then he, he went to work one day and never came back. But especially after the passing of my mom, so, which when I was seven, so we had a decade together where it was just the two of us. And he really, in ways that maybe he wasn't even aware and it was just intuitive to him, was just like the adoration that he had for me that was not like in any way maladaptive. It wasn't like obnoxious, but he just loved me. And so I think that sort of got imbibed into me in ways that was just organic. You know, I didn't have to know that dad loves me. I just felt it. So I'd say that he's been a teacher in the way that also, I think after the fact, I got to sort of intuitively dive into what it must be like for a man to have his mother, his wife pass, knowing that's the mother of the son that he loves or the child that he loves. And the fact that he dealt with that with such grace that I was oblivious to because I was just surviving as a kid. But that also later in life gave me such a, a, a gratitude and an appreciation for what it must be like for him and his karma to have to have dealt with that. So that would be one. 
then I'm going to throw in my mom, even though I didn't know her because I was only seven. But there's a there's an Atel that she showed me that speaks volumes about the woman she was, which is she'd left this little envelope. And I haven't shared this with anyone, but anyway, it seems appropriate now. But she left an, an envelope that just all on it said is for Peter Crone when 18 years old. So, and inside there was a beautiful note and it was the rings that were the, the symbolic change of exchange of love between my mom and my dad, the wedding rings, engagement rings, maternal rings, whatever. So this envelope had been sealed, and my dad had shown me probably when I was about age 12 or 13, because she'd put it in a file. My dad kept file. I was a great soccer player, and so he'd kept all these clippings from newspapers, and it was, it was in there, and he would occasionally show me and say, this is from your mom, right? So why that to me is sort of an atel as to who she was as a woman, because one, she died of cancer. And for her to have the foresight to want to leave a note for her son who would not get that note for another 11 years, but to be able to express the depths of love that she had for that being, which was me, and to want to share the tokens of love that she shared with my dad, and all while she knows she's about to die, to me spoke volumes about who that was as a woman. Wow. Can you imagine? Like, that's your only child. And you have the foresight to want to write a note for that son saying how, and the words were incredibly touching. And, you know, so, so that equally, and I've never told that story, but that, um, so those two. And then <laughs> out in left field, we've got um, Sri Nisargadatta, <laughs> who is sort of the quintessential Indian guru like Krishnamurti, who I'm sure you've heard of, or Ramana Maharshi. These are sort of these quintessential Eastern philosophy, Vedic yoga doctors, Advaita Vedanta, the non-dualistic way of looking at life. And for me, Srina Sagadatta was, I never met the guy, I just read his predominant book. It was a transcript of his satsang meetings where people would come to the ashram. Are you and, talking about Nisargadatta Maharaj? Yes. Oh, yeah, I am that? Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh my God, that's crazy. Yeah. That's the first spiritual book I ever had. Oh, wow. That's uh, a was, pretty deep dive. Yeah. <laughs> was, well, it's interesting. It, it, I had some family that used to travel to India when I was still in the depths of addiction in my early yeah. 20s. And they would go stay at this ashram of Satya Sai Baba in yeah. Puttaparthi, India, in southern India. And my cousin, who was around my age, he brought me that book as a gift. <clears throat> I am that. And I mean, I was just in the lowest of lows. I mean, it, just totally mentally incapacitated. I mean, reading a book is impossible, let alone a book of that depth. Yeah. <laughs> you know? it's, it's but I would, I would read the back cover, <laughs> mm-hmm. which is something to the effect of, you know, if a building's there uh, and then the building's gone, what could be said of the space? Is the space still there? Something like that. You yeah. know, some non-dual, yeah. you know, sort of puzzle, right? Um, and And I still have that copy of that book. And what's crazy is, all of these years later, that book makes perfect sense to me. And it almost seems not simple because I'd be, you know, kind of discounting the, you know, the gravity of it. But yeah. it doesn't sound like a foreign language to me. It's like, oh yeah, I mean, that's the goal. I don't know that I, I have non-duality, but I, I start to experience some of that concept. Yeah. And then um, one of my favorite teachers, if not my favorite, Dr. David Hawkins, uh-huh, I yeah. used to reference that book a lot. And all of his teachings were about... Um, you know, devotional non-duality in yeah. essence. And his whole framework that has just benefited my life so tremendously is really based on, you know, that Vedic system or theology of non-duality. So that's interesting, yeah. but 
very few people are aware of that teacher or that book. And it was like, that was the one book yeah. that gave me a, a little sliver of hope that there was some truth out there Yes, that I didn't understand, but that, that someone had at some point understood truth and, and the way life is. Yes. <laughs> someday I might be able to read it and get some help. And eventually uh, I did. So that's so cool. And that's why, I mean, I'll show you my copy one day and you'll just get a kick out of it. It's so dog-eared. There's probably like, without sounding too like, you know, I'm not being, I'm not exaggerating. There might be another one or two books inside of it just by virtue of the notes that I write between all the lines. But, right. but yeah, so he... And the thing that really resonated with me is because for a minute there, I felt like such a freak of nature because I was starting to see life so like I was an anomaly, certainly to my friends and anyone that I knew. And so for me, he was sort of the safe haven because as soon as I found the book, I was like, oh, I'm not just a complete freak. Like there's somebody else who gets what I'm talking about. So yeah. there was this sort of beautiful resonance and this this confirmation of like I was really onto something quite profound. So and I loved his attitude. He was so grumpy with it. Like, yeah. like you know, yeah. and I could sort of have that compassion for the fact he's like, look, I keep telling you the same damn things. Like you're not getting it. Like yeah. everything you think is BS. Like it was it, there was a comedy to his almost like anger in the way that he uh, he expressed his profound insights. But, Absolutely. So yeah, they would be the three that I'd pick. That's very cool. Thank you. All uh, right, where can people find you? Uh, um, Peter Crone, at, at Peter Crone is Instagram and then petercrone.com cool. on website. Yeah. Awesome. We'll put all that in the show notes at loopstory.com slash Peter. So anything we talked about, this book, references and stuff, we'll put in the show Amazing. notes. And uh, I'll Amazing. mention in the intro too. Man, thank you so much. I know you got to get to the airport. Yeah, we could wax lyrical for hours. So, so we'll do it again sometime. fun and inspiring yeah. to get to hang out with you. I'm so glad we recorded this conversation instead of just sitting out on the lawn shooting the shit. Yeah. Um, I think people are really going to benefit from this. So thank you so much for your gifts. Thank you for having me on, my friend. And for yeah. letting me just contribute some extra freedom. Yeah, awesome, man. Appreciate it. Well, now, as we say in the industry, it's time to drop the mics, folks. That's the end of another episode of the Lifestylist Podcast. That was number 413. And uh, remember, if you dug that one, and I rarely ask for this favor, because I feel like when I listen to podcasts, I get so sick of hearing it. (laughs) But if you'd be so kind as to leave a, of course, five-star rating, if you feel so called, and review on iTunes, it would be extremely helpful. And uh, it's easier than ever before to do that. Click around a bit. You'll find something that says review, rate, etc. Do that for your old pal, Luke. And uh, help me reach more people with this show. It's great when you leave ratings and reviews. For those of you that don't know, it helps you kind of uh, find rank and placement in the iTunes world. So when you go in there searching for podcasts, people will be much more likely to find this one due to your positive rating and review. So if you feel like taking a moment to do that, that would be incredible. If not, all I'm going to ask of you is to join me next week for episode 414. It's called Supercharge Your Home and Car with Healing Energy plus EMF Solutions featuring Philip from Leela Quantum Tech. Now, Philip's been on the show about two or maybe even three times before. And every time I see him, they've discovered some new application for their technology. And it's just the coolest stuff ever. So I'm probably going to keep having him on uh, as long as he keeps innovating. So make sure you subscribe to this podcast so you don't miss next week's episode or any episodes to follow. As a reminder, if you found some things mentioned in the show, such as books or resources, or you'd like to read a transcript of the one you just listened to, you can find show notes, links, and transcripts for this episode with Peter Crone at lukestory.com slash Peter. And lastly, if you were really moved by Peter 
and his presentation in this conversation. You can find his workshops and courses at petercrone.com. It's also worth mentioning that all of the links that are dropped in the intros and the outros, and even in many cases in the actual conversations taking place here on the show, you can find them on most podcast apps and they are hyperlinks. So you can just click them. So if you're hearing hear me kind of rattling off all of this stuff at the beginning of shows and after the shows, don't think you have to remember anything. I'm, I'm trying to give your mind a break where you can just listen and not have to take notes, write anything down press pause to try to go to a site or something, just click on the show notes and it's all in there on most podcast apps. So that is my uh, friendly tip as podcast host for you today. I'm out and I'll be back next Tuesday with number 414.